0: Hey, you're listening to the Swap Moto Live podcast presented by Ogio. I'm here uh, with uh, Moto Concepts Honda rider Justin Brayton, and Justin, we're we're not in the U S. We're in Paris, France right now. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah, pretty cool. Be over here in in Europe, and I actually have spent some time in Australia the past couple of months. So my time zones are all messed up right now.
0: Yeah. So you had another uh, successful run at the Australian Supercross Championship. How was that?
1: Yeah, it was good. So this was my third year going. And um, for me in the beginning, it was just some, it was an opportunity that that let my family travel a little bit. I went to Australia to do the first three rounds in 2010 when I was on JGR. And I just fell in love with the country, just everything about it. So I've always wanted to go back. And then when this presented itself with Honda and, and how I could kind of tie the two in with American Honda and also Honda Australia, it was a no-brainer for me. So, um, yeah, going on my third year uh got three titles in a row which was cool but um even more than that we've had so many awesome times as a family met so many good people over there um just really had a blast so um but obviously the the main goal was to to win another title and and win some races and we were able to do that so it was a successful trip
0: how many rounds is the
1: australian supergrass championship
0: this year it was five five yep and how long of a uh, time span is that over
1: Um, We're there for about two and a half months. So the first race is middle September, and then we have two weekends off Mm -hmm. in um, three full weeks. So uh, there's definitely some breaks in there, which is kind of cool, because then we get to travel around and see different things. And um, for me, it's kind of like a little little bit of a boot camp as well, like where I can get my training in for the American supergoss as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I read on your Instagram that this year's title was challenging because you and your family were sick most of the time is it just uh, pneumonia like I've had pneumonia once but it Mm -hmm. came as a result of a a punctured lung and I got moisture in my lungs but like Mm -hmm. uh, pneumonia without an injury is is just a sickness that gets worse and worse and doesn't
1: go away right (coughs) yeah so we landed in Australia and um, the first day my wife didn't feel very good she had a fever and so the second day we're there we take her to the emergency room and she's got pneumonia she was in the hospital for two and a half days so it was really a balancing act for me because we have two kids we have a four-year-old and a one-year-old so i'm at home with the kids or a so-called home that a house airbnb that we just checked into my wife's in the hospital we want to keep the kids away from the hospital so they don't get it and then um so that was a really rough start to the trip and then i raced the first race ended up winning and then uh a couple weeks later I started to feel sick and I came down with, with pneumonia which was crazy because I, I had it for the first time last year which is weird like exactly mm-hmm. a year ago and it knocked me out like it was bad for about five weeks I was I was down and out um, thankfully this time I really only didn't feel good for about two weeks but it happened at the worst time when I had three weekends in a row of racing so I got pneumonia on a Wednesday I went to the hospital on a Wednesday. I got the flu on Friday. So I was throwing up and everything mm. on top of the pneumonia. And I had to race Saturday. So it was a really challenging time. And then that lingered for you know a couple weeks. And then um, I started to feel better and for about four days or so. Um, well, rewinding a little bit, before I had gotten sick, I was starting to do 25 and 30 lap motos. I got sick. I couldn't even finish eight laps at the practice track. So I clawed my way back to where I could do 15s. And then the week before Ozx, which was about two weeks ago, I got uh, bronchitis. So pretty much the whole trip, there was never like a solid week mm-hmm. where everyone felt good. And then throw in my kids being sick, and so it was just, just a,
0: kids caught it too. Yeah,
1: they didn't get it too bad. They didn't get pneumonia <laughs> or anything, but like ear infections and cold and kind of that standard stuff. And it was a bummer because the past two years we've had just such an amazing time in Australia. We've never got sick, and every time we've gotten home, we're like. I can't, like, we didn't even get a cold. We didn't mm-hmm. get anything from the travel. And this year, it just everything came and got us. So it was a rough trip. Thankfully, I was still able to win the, the title and, and have, a, have a good time, win some races, but it was, it was challenging.
0: Well, do you think your wife caught it on the plane? Because, I mean, all that's the recyc- what, recycled air. And- that's
1: what we think, yeah. And it just so <clears throat> happened that the people that were sitting in front of her <coughs> had a young kid that um, was probably eight years old. And he was just hanging over uh, the seat, looking at Beckham, my one-year-old, because he's all over the place, and he's mm-hmm. climbing all over Paige, my wife and stuff. And he was just hacking, like, uh. the whole time. And the parents didn't do anything about it. And I was just like... That's the worst. Yeah, it was just kind of, like, disrespect. And so who knows if it was that or, or what. but And maybe, you know, they say, pneumonia, can, it can be in your system for a long time, and then you, you never know when. It, like, it could have been in her system for three months. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was tough, and it was tough to see her like that because she's she's pretty tough. She doesn't get sick very often, but she like couldn't even get out of the bed. Like mm-hmm. it was for us to take or for us to go to the emergency room in a different country. Um, health insurance is different, like everything. Yeah. It was it was pretty difficult, but um, it's going to be a trip we we tell stories about for a long time. So, but when I got home, we got home last week, last Monday. Uh, I went to the doctor and. Um, found out I had bronchitis, so now I'm just, I actually feel pretty good. It's just my lungs and stuff still aren't quite 100%. Like, mm-hmm. to be quite honest, a, a 20-lapper tonight is probably going to be a big struggle for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, OzX was was just a challenge in itself by trying to win the title, but I was there to race with Jason and Chad and, and Dean, but, um, yeah, I just I felt so bad that uh, fourth was really all I had. mm mm-hmm.
0: Did you get a really gnarly fever? Because that's what I yeah. remember about pneumonia.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had, and then, so I'm basically sweating, drenched in bed. But then you take the covers off and then you have chills. Like, I'm actually, the night before the Australian race at OzX, I, uh, I was drenched in sweat. And I went to get up and go to the bathroom and I could barely make it to the bathroom. My my teeth were, ch- like, chattering. It was so mm-hmm. cold. So, um, yeah, I had a temp of, like, 104 at one point And it just... Yeah, it, it was tough, and then throw trying to race a motorcycle, and yeah, it, was, it was difficult.
0: Yeah. All right. So, you're 34 right now.
1: Yep. It's funny because
0: 10, 15 years ago, it was kind of unheard mm-hmm. of to race competitively in your 30s. Like a couple yeah. guys did it. Yeah.
1: But I mean, you're in your
0: prime, wouldn't you say? Like mm-hmm. at, at 34. What? Why has yeah. that changed? Do you think?
1: Honestly, I I don't really know. I can't really pinpoint one thing. Maybe mental because. For me, I've always just clawed. Like I was never that good as an amateur, so I just felt like I've just been clawing my way to try and get rides and stay on factory teams. And I was, I'm just just been out of that number one guy. So I've been mm-hmm. kind of a number two guy on a lot of teams, and I've just kept clawing and clawing and clawing. And and um, you know, you like I said, you're always kind of fighting for rides, and you're in this kind of you're in the trenches with probably five to eight other guys that are about the same speed and and you always had to live up to certain expectations where now i don't like none of it's really going to change my life that way like as far as results or you know money or anything like that it's not like one way or the other is going to be a total like determine how my life goes from here Mm -hmm. granted like uh, the win in daytona for sure is life you know i'll remember it for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. and you could say it's life changing but my kids don't really know. My wife doesn't I won't say she doesn't care, but like she doesn't really care, you know, like mm-hmm. she loves me either way. So I think that's been a lot of pressure off of my shoulders. I'm on a team now that that they care about me no matter what, where if I get eighth on a, on a night, that's okay. Mm-hmm. If I win, awesome. If I get twelfth, not that big of a deal. Mike Genova is paying out of his own pocket. So it's not like he has sponsors to live up to. It's getting bigger and bigger and he's getting more and more support, but still he's kept his same kind of outlook on the team. And so I think that's helped. Um, And then quite honestly, like it's a lot of these young guys should be beating me and they're not. Mm -hmm. And I kind of take pride in that. Like I think (laughs) me and Chad both kind of do like, Hey, yeah, you can say we're old, but until these young guys start beating us, we're here. Yeah. And, um, you know i think a lot of probably 250 guys see certain guys like myself or chad or um because i did the same when i was in 250s like i i kind of thought where my spot was like okay i'll be a fifth place guy mm-hmm. well then you get there and you're like guys that you thought you would beat are blown by you and you're like oh crap so i kind of take pride in that now like yeah these young guys are coming up or even established 450 guys and i might be getting older but I'm not going anywhere anytime soon I'm faster than I've ever been I'm more fit than I've ever been and and I think on top of that the mental game for me there's just not quite as much pressure so on race day I feel like I'm a little more at ease. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: I remember the first time I saw you or met you we were at Lake Elsinore motocross (laughs) park and you were you were kind of like the up-and-coming arena cross guy yeah so being a guy who cut his teeth in arena cross what are your thoughts about that series going away?
1: Yeah, it, it's a bummer for me because honestly without Arena Cross, I'm not here right now. And you know, the, the system that they had in place the past few years which was the, the road to Supercross, mm-hmm. I don't know if that necessarily was a good thing or a bad thing. For me it just happened on total accident. Like I, I was from Iowa. The only thing I knew was Arena Cross. Mm-hmm. I looked like Buddy Antones was my idol. Uh <laughs> Chad Peterson was from the town that I grew up in, in Iowa and he was my idol like he he was the guy I strived to be, and he was an arena cross guy at the time. Um, and Des Moines Arena Cross was always the season opener. That was like our A1. I would go there every year and just dream of racing that race. And Supercross, to me, was always such a – it was just a show on TV that I watched that was never realistic. I never had a chance to go to a Supercross to watch. Jeremy McGrath, to me, was more like a cartoon character because all you see <laughs> was on TV, you know. Yeah. Where I actually got to see Chad Pedersen, I actually got to see Buddy Antonez. So those were the guys that I looked up to. And I, and quite honestly, I never thought I'd race a Supercross, you know, because it was just so far-fetched. Even Des Moines Arena Cross was far-fetched, but it was in my home state to where I could go watch and I could, like, physically watch it to where, yeah, maybe I could do that. And then senior year in high school, we showed up to Des Moines uh, season opener on Bone Stock motorcycles, and that's the one weekend I can say that probably changed my life. hmm because I, I was racing Buddy Antonez and Damon Bradshaw and Denny Stevenson, uh, Pedersen, like all these guys. And then you had Supercross guys like Heath Voss and Jason Thomas and, you know, a lot of privateer Supercross guys showed up because it was in November. And um, I believe there was 200 plus riders. Mm-hmm. So you had to qualify to qualify. And I was fastest in practice. I passed Bradshaw on the heat race to win the heat race to make it to the main event. While puking in my helmet because I was so nervous, and uh, and I nearly won the main event, I slid out and and I nearly won the main event. So that weekend right there proved to me for one, I was better than I thought I was, for two, it put me on the radar for other pro riders, but also teams. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and that, that was kind of the opener. And I think I made four or five grand that weekend. I was like, dang, that. This is all right. I could do this, you Back know. So. Then you go buy a new bike with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was on stock motorcycle. It was like literally I was on bone stock, stock suspension. suspension. Oh wow. Yeah, the only thing we did is I put Renthal nine nine seven bars on. Mm-hmm. That that was it. Dude, we Des didn't Moines. even know what checking sag was. Yeah. We just showed up. Wow. Yeah, I did.
0: I did the Des Moines uh, Arena Cross Amateur Day.
1: Yeah. On Buddy
0: Antonez's bike when he was the one on the Primal Impulses. Yeah, league. yeah.
1: Dude, I cartwheeled that thing. in <laughs> the really? so bad. But, uh... <laughs> that's funny. But yeah, but that, so... That's what opened the doors to Paul Lindsay at Motor World. Mm-hmm. So that was my real first opportunity, but that's where he saw me. Mm-hmm. And then fast-forwarding a little bit, getting to be teammates with Buddy Antonez on Tamer Honda. And then Budman is the one who introduced me to everyone, who got mm-hmm. me a fill-in ride at, at Factory Connection Honda, who took me under his wing and just kind of... Next thing you know, I was in California riding bicycles with Jeff Emig and Jeremy McGrath and Ryan Hughes and mm-hmm. Buddy Antonis. Man, so. that has
0: been it's been quite a journey for you. Like you've been on so many different teams.
1: Like, mm-hmm. can you run down all of them? Yes. Yeah, so my first team was Tamer Honda, which was kind of put together for me with Stormlight Honda based out of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Then I got an opportunity with Motor World Suzuki at the time, which was like short and all them, but they were starting an arena cross team. So when Paul approached me in 2004, he said. I'll give you a two-year deal. The first year is arena cross. The second year is guaranteed supercross. And Budman was helping me out. He was like kind of my agent at the time. So I rode Motor World Suzuki in 2004 and broke my leg at the opener, Des Moines. And that was my year. Like I felt like I could compete with Darcy and Josh DeMuth at the time to maybe go for that title. And I got hurt at the first round. So I was out the whole season. But anyways, the Motor World switched to Yamaha. So I started racing supercross and was... You know, didn't even crack the top 10. I think maybe my best that year was a ninth. Mm-hmm. And then stayed with Motorola for two more years and um, really struggled outdoors. Like, I was horrendous outdoors. Uh, I think my first national number was national number 86, and I did the whole season. So that mm-hmm. tells you how bad I was. Uh, and then got an opportunity with KTM, MDK, KTM. And I remember sitting out with Kurt Nickel in, in the office and in at KTM, and he said, basically, we don't care about outdoors for you we're hiring you for Supercross because I'd got some top fives at that point. and so I signed with KTM for two years that's when I got, I got my first podium that year at Anaheim 1 and then um, then I switched to 450 outdoors at the end of 2009 and that's when I kind of started blossoming outdoors I won Steel City, Final Moto and got a lot of top fives and, um, and then I signed with JGR so I was at JGR in 2010 2011, that's when I moved to North Carolina 2012 I got the opportunity with Factory Honda which was I grew up on Hondas. That was my ultimate dream, and that was, that was an amazing experience, having arguably one of my best seasons. Is that the season you got the 10? Uh, no, I got 10 the first, so my first year on, on JGR, I was number 23, mm-hmm. which I earned at KTM, and then I got a permanent number that year, so I was number 10 in 2011. Okay. Yeah, so I went to factory Honda 2012, and then went back to JGR 2013 and fourteen. And then BTO, KTM, 15 and 16. And then at the end of 2016, or halfway through, I knew I needed to make a change. Outdoors just, and and I've done these overseas races too, Mm and basically with all those teams. So I've been racing 12 months out of the year for a long time. And it was just finally wearing on me, so um, I knew at the end of the BTO deal that I've gotta do something different. I need to find a Super S only ride, that's what I wanna do, and the deal at the time with American Honda and Honda Australia, that all just kinda, it came together like, like the calls that happened and the people I talked to that, it it just all happened so easy. Mm -hmm. And Dan Dan Bentley was team manager at the time. He's the one who kinda headed all of it up. He was my first phone call. And uh, so they gave me a factory bike to go over to Australia. And I didn't have anything in the States at the time, but he said, when you come back, we want you on a Honda for Mm Supercross. We've got this support I believe it was the Troy Lee Honda support that was going to go away at the end of that year, so they wanted to put that money somewhere, and he was like, "Let's put our heads together on what team we can take that to." And Mike Genova was was by far the the top of the list, and and um, here we are now, my third year with with MCR, and uh, so yeah, I've been on some some awesome teams, some teams that I wouldn't even have dreamed of riding for with, and then. With JGR, that's changed my life as far as meeting my wife. Mm-hmm. Charlotte, North Carolina is home now. And uh, so, yeah, several different teams, different personalities, different bikes. But, um, you know, I've had some good results on all of them.
0: Yeah. Would you say that uh, your joining the MCR team really validated that team? Because, I mean, they've been around for several years, right? But it was, Yeah. Like, you have to admit, when you were going to that team, were you a little bit, like, skeptical about...
1: For sure, I was skeptical, 100%. Um, but I did have a lot of talks with, with Mike Genova, and I've respected him for a long time. Like, I would see him, you know, we're all in this traveling world together, yeah. and we see each other all the time, and I've always respected what he's done. You know, he's made some mistakes, for sure, um, but there's two sides to every story. And I think Tony created some of that as well with how passionate he was for his kid. and. But I've always been taught to not judge a book by its cover. And... It seemed like that was the best case scenario for me, the way Mike had talked, and um, and then with Honda on board. But I kind of looked at it as like the Andrew Short going to BTO. Mm-hmm. Before that, they weren't really that great of a team either. And nothing changed other than Andrew Short being respected by his peers in the sport. Then it validated that team. Mm-hmm. I would have never went to that team if it wasn't for Andrew Short. Yeah, Where I think I've done that same thing to Moto Concepts is, hey, I'm, I feel like I've got a good reputation in the sport. I feel like a lot of people respect me. If he can go there and he gets along with those guys, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe they are good people. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's been that. It was a little bit of a struggle the first year because we had a new bike and didn't have many parts. And I was getting to know personalities. And uh, me and Tony got into it a couple times just about bike stuff. And we just had to get to learn each other. Mm-hmm. But the past two years have been seamless. Like, it's been yeah. awesome. And I've had opportunities to go to other teams, factory teams. Um, and, I, and honestly, I don't want to. Like, I'm I'm totally happy what I'm doing now. Um, like I said earlier about the pressure, like, there's not much pressure to do well. Um, we all want to do well, but that's where I strive best is trying to, not trying to prove a point, but, hey, I'm on the so-called lesser team, which is really not anymore because we have factory equipment. But um, you can still do it at a high, high level, mm-hmm. and uh, we've proved that this year and and, uh, and it's a great group of guys. I mean, from team dinners to um, when me and Genova talk during the week, it's not like we talk for thirty minutes, sometimes we're on the phone for two hours, mm-hmm. and we don't even talk dirt bikes. We yeah. talk life and kids and stresses and you know everything that you don't really talk to to your team manager if you're on a factory team. you don't get to that level, yeah. you don't break that that barrier, and thankfully, I have like Eric Keo and I had an awesome relationship. Uh, when I was at Honda, there's been several that I've been on that you can kind of break that, that barrier, but it's hard to do. And me and Mike, Genova, have that relationship where, where I can call him and tell him anything. And a lot of times that's why you struggle on the weekend is what's going on at home or what's what you're dealing with, uh, the anxieties you have or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And we're an open book and, and that's pretty cool. And sometimes you're scared to say that to the factory teams because sometimes maybe they don't quite care about you like you want them to, or like you think so, um, But to answer your question, I I feel like I have, I think the team would say the same thing. Mm -hmm. They haven't really changed much, other than me being on the team. And then also, the Honda support has really, really validated it as well.
0: Yeah. You know, do you know I've known Tony since 1990? Really? Like, when he was, uh, I think he was announcing at Paris, and he was writing uh, Cycle News Locals articles, you know, about Paris and... Lecr wherever wherever the GFI series went, Mm -hmm. but I was working at Cycle News as the uh, locals editor, assistant editor, but I was in charge of all that. So I was Tony's editor. He would send me the stories in like a little negative strip of negative Mm -hmm. film, you know, and a story about you know whoever won. And I I distinctly remember him calling me one day and saying, "Man, I think I'm going to buy this Yamaha PW." really it, it like, for,
1: for Mike yeah, yeah.
0: I, for the boys and I don't know if I want to go down that road really <laughs> it, it's wow. pretty funny but
1: yeah knowing what we know now it's crazy that, yeah. yeah but he's
0: to me like my relationship with him he went like way gnarly off the deep end crazy mm-hmm. motocross dad for a while yeah but lately I've been speaking to him at the track and he's mm-hmm. he seems dialed as far as like being a team manager and yeah. what he's trying to do and, He's running that little mini bike series mm-hmm. at, at Milestone, and yeah. his objectives and reasoning for that are totally on point. I think.
1: Yeah, and I agree uh, for sure. We all know the stories of him, and um, but now knowing that the deeper side of it, like basically, if if Mike didn't win or make a certain amount of money, like he mortgaged the house, he he quit his job, he he cashed in his four hundred one k. So this is what we got, kids, and we need to make it. Yeah which is crazy but he did it and um but now like it's funny I saw a picture of him actually when I was in Australia he was at the track and he had his glasses on and he was talking to Malcolm or something in the picture and I was just like he looked like a sophisticated like dialed in team manager which is what he is and I really believe in five years or so he's going to be known for that and even now he kind of is but you know, he still has a little bit of stigma, but he's admitted it all, which I think mm-hmm. is awesome. But the kids on mini bikes now are gonna know Tony Alessi not as the mini dad, but as the legit dialed in team manager who people want to ride for, yeah. and that's pretty special. That's cool that he's done that.
0: <laughs> one thing that sticks out to me about Tony is, you know, a few years after the kids had been riding and they were doing the hardest thing, they're still on peewees.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I remember he called me one day and I was like, hey man, do you have any like crazy Japanese secrets on how to heal a bone fast? And <laughs> I was like, what? And he's oh, Michael broke his arm, but we have to race at the Larry Lins qualifier in two weeks. And <laughs> that's I was like, to hey, a what t- are yeah. you talking about?
1: But, yeah. You can definitely say that he has not left any stone unturned. Never. For his kids. Yeah. And that's pretty cool.
0: So uh, did you, I know Michael races for the Kawasaki team in Canada, but like, do you interact much with him?
1: No, I don't, really, since he was on the team in, in uh, 17. I haven't really spoken to him at all. He's really not at any races. And, um, and you know, not that it's a one way or the other for him being on the team, but I definitely think that it's mellowed out Tony, mm-hmm. for sure, without Mike being on the team. Um, you know, he was still the dad yeah. and the team manager. Yeah. And I think the dad role was 90% of the day. Mm-hmm. 10% of the day was team manager. So it took away a lot from from even Vince and I at the time. And um, I just think he was so worried about Mike doing well. And then at the time, Mike was scared. I remember talking to him in the truck. like He was so nervous to hit these rhythm sections. Or he was so nervous at getting hurt. And mm-hmm. So I think that really stressed Tony out as well. Yeah. So I think it's been good for both of them. Mike, for one, now not racing supergots and not being so nervous or scared to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And then also it's eased. Tony a little bit, knowing that Mike's in his element. He likes going to Canada. He does yeah. well up there. He's out doing outdoors. He's only racing 10 to 12 races a year. So I think it's been great for both of them. And, and I don't know exactly their relationship so much, but it seems like they've got a great relationship. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's helped you know, Mike not being on the team.
0: Another Tony Alessi quote popped into my head. <laughs> when the boys were starting to race Supercross, he goes, Don. I, I think, I actually think Jeffrey's going to be better at Supercross than Michael. Mm-hmm. I was like, why? And he goes, because he listens to that black rap music. No he's got really good rhythm, so I think that
1: will. <laughs> oh gosh.
0: <laughs> That's funny. But uh, okay, so money. we're uh, we're in France right now, and before I have hit the record button, we were talking about start money and off season stuff. But, like, you have always always done really well. In foreign countries mm-hmm. why do you think that is and you know what did it take to finally parlay that success into the US
1: yeah I think there's a few different things but um, for one you're only racing two or three you know high <laughs> level guys here mm-hmm. so you, you you don't have to worry about the other ten guys you know yeah but and,
0: sometimes you would take down the dude at the, yeah
1: the... I've won before I won all of these European races before and I don't know if it's just a belief, or there's not much pressure, or because I struggled a long time with with I, I was not good on race day, anxiety and and trying to live up to a certain thing, and um going back to Des Moines Arena Cross, I was throwing up in my helmet, like I was so nervous racing with those guys, and and when we came overseas, it was just like, you know, kind of whatever, and and the tracks lend to my hand a little bit because of Arena Cross, and they're usually a little bit tighter and. Honestly, I don't really know. Like, it's kind of just something that has happened. But I definitely think over the past five years, I've correlated that to the States. Mm-hmm. Maybe not 100%, <coughs> but fairly good. Um, there's weekends that I've raced with, you know, guys that I've raced with over here and beat. There's weekends that I've beat them in the States as well. But and And a lot of times, too, when I was winning those races... I wasn't racing Villapoto. I wasn't racing Dungy. And those were the guys that were beating me in the States. So, yeah, I could beat everyone over here. Or even I'd come over here and beat somebody that maybe I wasn't expected to. But then people forgot that I probably beat them back in the States, too. Mm -hmm. Or at least we battled. Um, But the two guys that I can say that beat me, three guys, including Stewart um, and Chad Reed, I guess, but were Villapoto and Dungy. And they never came over here. I never Mm -hmm. raced them. So... Um, those are the two guys that, throughout my whole career, I never really could beat them.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a uh, a larger fan following in some European countries than you do in the states, because of your success here?
1: Um, I can definitely say now in Australia. I don't know about Europe. Um, Geneva, I've been to Geneva almost every year for like the past eight years, mm-hmm. and I will say like that that's cool because every time I go, it's like people can. They cheer for me now because I 've been there so many times, and mm-hmm. um, I think me and Marvin are actually tied for most ever wins in geneva it 's either four or five um, so yeah, I can definitely say that Geneva is one of them i haven't been to Paris in quite a few years, actually the last time I was here, maybe like two thousand and fifteen so um, but yeah it's been cool to get a little bit of a, a global following and um, and to get to know new new fans and friends has been cool. Mm-hmm.
0: <coughs> Okay, back in the day, uh, you know, like the Lachine era, mm-hmm. I remember hearing that riders can make more in a few off-season races with the start money than they could salary in the U.S. Yeah. Is it still like that?
1: Yeah, for sure. And this year, i I think I've done too many, but it was I, you know, with with Australia and then Europe and then now with my schedule, not doing the summer, I'm definitely more open. Like I'll do as many as I can in the off-season. Yeah, and, yeah, I'll make more in, in the, these three months than maybe the whole year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely cool that you can you can do that and, um, and still enjoy it. And also, I've never once came over here and just collected the money. I've always spent the money to either ship a bike or bring stuff over, or like this one I flew in, my mechanic from Australia and my mechanic from the U.S., just so my bike's dialed. Like, I've always wanted to win these races. Mm-hmm. And I think I've honestly made a name for myself by winning these. Um, you know, like, I feel like even X Games and, and these Europe races put Justin Brayton on the map more than I would have been uh, any other way by getting top fives in the States. Mm-hmm. When I win these races, when nothing else is going on, when guys like yourself are over here, that's what you're talking about. That's what every motocross fan is is looking at. On Trans World, they're going to see Paris Supergirls this weekend. That's the only thing they're going to look at. Mm-hmm. If Justin Brayden wins, like that's everybody sees that. If I get fourth at Anaheim one, nobody really sees that. So I think it's great. I think it's helped my career. Like I said, I think it's it's proven to teams that I can I can do it on any given night, be the best guy. So my advice to younger riders would be: for one, race as much as you can, mm-hmm. and for two. Um, I think it's great to get your name out there, especially if you're not at the very highest level in the States. Be at the highest level somewhere, somewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Be the best guy that people are talking about. You can learn how to win races. I never won an amateur title ever, so where was I going to learn how to win races? I had to kind of search a little bit as a pro mm-hmm. to be able to learn how to how to win, and now that's why we can probably say at 34 I'm maybe the best I've ever been.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of winning races, Daytona. Yeah, uh, I was cracking up. I saw I saw Nap at milestone this week. Yeah, and he had a sticker on his back when yeah. it said Braytona <laughs> Ten. Yeah, where did that come about? The, the sticker.
1: Yeah, so after that weekend, MCR that they you know uh, have Motor Graphics as yeah. well, and um, so they made up a bunch of stickers, Braytona, and, wow. and there, there was all kinds of different stickers. So. Yeah, seven deuce. Deuce has always been cool and a supporter. He didn't even tell me he did that. I actually saw him at somewhere. I was pulling in behind him at a track, and I I called him right then. I'm like, dude, you got a sticker on your truck? That's cool. So, yeah, that that race was just incredible. It's something I think about almost every day. Um, Just a storybook day that, yeah, it, it was just crazy. And even that whole stretch of a month was crazy with winning the first triple crown race in Atlanta. Having all my family there. That's almost a home race for me now in Mm -hmm. Atlanta. And then really dreading Daytona. I I don't typically like that race. Um, I was sick the whole week coming into it. I didn't ride. And, um, yeah, just one of those days that came together. I gelled with the track really well starting in practice. I actually told my mechanic, Tony Berluti, after the first practice, I'm like, I'm having so much fun. Like, that track Mm -hmm. layout is awesome. I think I was fifth fastest in practice, which is I mean, some years I'm 15th mm-hmm. there and feel like I'm going faster. Feel like I'm about to crash because I'm trying to go so fast. And then I got good starts and yeah, just just it, it totally came together. And, and I've always said I've, you know, you, you can talk about it, but I never ever wanted to be done without at least winning one race because I've been mm-hmm. so close so many years. And, and uh, Villapoto's either got me the last. Like, I don't know how many times he's passed me in the last five laps of a race. <laughs> It's probably a handful of times, and um, so to finally win one was, gosh, it was such a breath of fresh air, and the exhilaration of of winning, and winning at Daytona, and um, just all of it, and and how it all came together with the number 10, with with, um, being March 10th, and round 10, and me number 10, and my transponder was 10 that weekend, and um, I think it was my 10th podium, I believe, it was Genova's tenth year of having a team. Like there was, there was like eight or ten number tens that just uh-huh. the night just came together. It was it was incredible. Something I'll never forget. Earlier I said, you know, nothing from here on out is really life changing. I would say that's that's somewhat life changing because now when I see anybody that's a motorcycle fan, that's what they're probably going to remember Justin Brayton as. Yeah. and um, that's pretty special. And to be at Daytona, it's just a testament to. You know, we say it all the time, but hard work and perseverance and a guy that couldn't even make a main event um, that dreamed of even racing an arena cross can win the Daytona Supercross Mm -hmm. and be, you know, a high level guy and battle for wins is is something that that is pretty special. And I have to kind of remind myself all the time that because as athletes and racers, you're always striving for more. You want more, more, more. So I think if I would have won when I was 25, it might have hurt me because... That expectation, I would have never been able to live up to that, you know, yeah. because that's the standard. And even this next year, I've got to hold myself in check a little bit. Cause last year is the standard. I was a top five guy almost every weekend. I won several heat races. I got on the podium several times and I won Daytona. I don't know if I'll do that again. You know, like mm-hmm. of course I want to, but that can't be the expectation because that expectation is it's really, really high and um, we're just going to do the same thing as I did last year, which was enjoy the process, have fun, and um, so yeah. So I'm glad I got it done at 34, and then to break the record for oldest to ever win, like that's pretty cool too. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was a special night that I'll remember forever.
0: Yeah, the coolest thing about that was just seeing how pumped you were on the on the podium. Mm-hmm. You didn't you didn't hold it back. You didn't, yeah ramble off the list of sponsors with a solemn
1: face. You're hooting
0: and hollering,
1: you know? Yeah, it was a true... My true emotions came out for sure. And when I crossed the trigger flag, it was just like, honestly, 30 years of riding and racing and mortgaging the house, my parents maxing out credit cards, and then finally me getting a ride. And then, you know, my first ride was... My first paying ride was 40 grand. I thought I was rich. And then signing some big contracts and actually making good money... To then, you know, there's just so many things you think about to get there, and then almost winning at Phoenix in 2014, and almost winning at Indy in 2012, and almost winning at New Orleans in 2000. Like, there's so many times where it was so, so close, and it just never happened. And to do it there, to do it on that night with that team, with two kids, being the oldest, like, honestly, I, I, can't even script it any better mm-hmm. and um I'll even watch it you know now and, and I'll tear up just by thinking about it and what's really crazy is and I've wanted to post this on social media but I sent a text I was on the flight home from Anaheim I believe it was Anaheim two when when I got second to Seely the first race and I think got fourth that night at the triple crown and I just had this feeling of like I actually started crying on the plane flying back to Charlotte just thinking about like where i'm at my career and and what my parents have done and i'm 34 and i'm like like i'm still at a high level like a very high level and i sent a, a text to both my step best and my mom who took me racing my whole life that um basically i'm gonna win this year and i'm gonna do it for them like this is this long text i can't wait to i was gonna right time but it's gonna be really cool to Kind of show the fans of what was happening. I was literally in tears crying on the plane, sending this text. Mm-hmm. And then reading that text back after I won was like, <laughs> I, bet. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then to follow that up with four heat race wins in a row and indie podium and um, triple crown wins and like, it was crazy to think that, you know, supposedly a privateer team at 34 years old and a guy that's old and, you know, whatever. It's throwing down and yeah. being one of the best still. How long uh, How long do you see it going? Really, I'm just taking it year by year. I think for sure I have two more years at a high level. Um, I did sign a two-year deal with, <coughs> with MCR and, <coughs> and Honda. The second year is is option, but it's guaranteed if, if I want it. But the last thing Genova wants me to do is race when I don't want to race. Mm-hmm. But as long as I'm comfortable on the motorcycle that's the main thing if I feel like I can go compete at a high level it makes me want to train hard during the week it makes me not be so bummed to leave my family every weekend um, so but now my daughter you know she's going to be in, pre, in uh, kindergarten next year and so I'm going to have to rethink the whole Australia and, and that whole schedule because it, the kids are growing up mm-hmm. so I think it's just going to take some fine tuning what's, what's worked the past three years may not work next year
0: mm-hmm.
1: but when the time comes we'll kind of see but I think I think I've got two more at a high level. But honestly, man, I love the sport so much. I love riding motorcycles so much. It's like this summer was a perfect testament. Like I have the whole summer off. We can go to the beach. We can do whatever we want. And I was down at Club of MX doing motos with McAdoo and Nicoletti and all these guys in 100-degree heat. Mm -hmm. And um, so that just shows how much I love it. And I, I tell my wife all the time, like, If somebody said, you can do anything you want today, wake up, do anything you want. I'm going to ride my motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty crazy doing it all these years. And there's been years where I haven't felt that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been years where I felt like I wanted to be done. But then you take that little break. Then you notice, hey, I can't do 12 months out of the year. I need to take the summer off. Once you do that, you realize how much just a month off or even just two weeks of just nothing, just no dirt bikes, it can really show you how much you, you you really love it. And I think that's why you see Villapoto and dungie doing what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. I think they really miss it. And one person that's helped me a ton with that is Jimmy Johnson, I've got to be close with him, uh, living in Charlotte, where he's went through that same thing and now he loves driving and racing more than ever. He don't have anything to prove, he's won seven NASCAR championships and he's made all the money in the world. But he wants to race, and mm-hmm. I met him at a low point in uh, around 2013, when I was struggling and didn't really want to race, and he, you know, he's helped me a lot. So um, I know I'll miss it when I'm done, but so I don't want to step away too soon. <coughs> but I also don't want to wear out my welcome. Yeah. And I think the day that I show up and and I'm just either struggling to make the top ten or or I don't have a shot at being fastest in practice or a shot at winning a heat race or a shot at winning a main. Then it's time to to figure out something different, um, whether that's two years or four years, I'm not sure, but um, we'll just see when that time comes.
0: You don't strike me as a guy that uh, goes out and spends money frivolously. Mm-hmm. I would assume you've invested everything real well and, and you're in a really good place. Mm-hmm. Could you quit racing right now? And
1: um, I could definitely quit racing and be comfortable. I don't think I I wouldn't be able to quit and retire for the rest of my life and just Mm -hmm. sit on a couch, nor would I want to do that. Um, I've got other businesses that I've started or or in the process of starting in Charlotte that I'm super excited about, and I've definitely invested well. I've definitely been very frugal in in spending. I mean, I got my first new truck ever last year. (laughs) I've never had a new truck. Um, So and not that that matters, but like – I've just always been so focused on racing that I've put as much as I can back into my racing. And, you know, I've tried to make smart decisions. And um, because there has been times where I literally had nothing, like I I was borrowing money from my parents living in California to pay $500 rent a month just so I could mm-hmm. stay out there, maxing out credit cards. I remember calling one credit card company. It was $5,000 max. I tried to get it to 7000 just so I could be out there for another couple months and I grew up in a family that I knew how hard they worked to take me racing and I knew their credit cards were maxed and one of the first things I did when I started making good money was pay off all those credit cards for my parents just so just because I know like what went into that you know Mm -hmm. like I know the stresses of and they didn't want me to do that at all it was just something that I felt was right and um So I grew up in that, you know, like I I, I didn't grow up with with any money. So when I started making, you know, six figures, it was like, holy smokes, like that's more than my parents make combined, you know. Mm -hmm. And then when I started making, you know, really good money, it was like, for one, I didn't know what to do with it because, and I think that's part of the problem with the younger generation too, is like a lot of us come from blue collar workers who our parents maybe make 30 grand sometimes, you know. So when we start making 100 or 500 whatever it is, like we have to have someone around us at that time that we can trust. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I didn't make that money at 16 or even at 20. Mm-hmm. It was when I was in my mid-20s when I had met some people that I trusted. So I'm very thankful for that. If I would have started making that money when I was 20, I mean, a tax man would have been knocking on my door because I had no idea mm-hmm. what to do. Now I feel like I can give some really good advice to younger kids with the business side of racing too. With starting your own business and, and how to do taxes. And, like, I enjoy that side of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I definitely couldn't retire for the rest of my life. But, like I said, nor do I want to. Um, I'm so passionate about the sport. Um, I would love to stay in the sport of somehow, some way, uh, probably not be on the road every weekend. But I feel like I have a lot to give back because there's not a lot of guys that have been at every level where literally they can't make a super main. And then they're barely getting top 10s. And then at one point winning races and fighting for championships. I can't think of another guy that has truly, truly can relate to every rider in that mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. And I felt all those emotions and they're all different. They're all different pressures and they're all different um, ways to look at it, and all different mindsets. And, um, and it's a struggle. The, the higher you get up, the more pressure there is and the more, you know, so I, I love that side of it. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny this year. Like I, I talk to other riders all the time, guys that I'm racing against, and give them advice. And um, I was actually in the truck at Salt Lake City this year with Christian, having a chat with him, and because I knew he was struggling a little bit, and uh, he beat me that night. He got fourth, and like he just thanked me so much. But honestly, I was more proud of that than than even me, like doing I think fifth or sixth that night. But like I was so proud of him because of what maybe I said might have worked a little bit, and if it worked one percent. And that's when you know you're kind of getting older, where you almost enjoy seeing other people, <laughs> other people's successes more than your own. Um, so I really enjoy that, and I've gotten close to other guys that I'm, and I'm an open book because I know we all struggle. We're in the same struggle together, and it can look glamorous from the outside. And um, so, yeah, I would love to stay in the sport somehow, some way. Not sure at what capacity, but like I said earlier, I, I love it. I'll ride for the rest of my life mm-hmm. as much as I can. I'll teach my kids how to ride, and um, it's the one thing that that I would do if I could do anything in the world is is ride dirt bikes.
0: Um, <clears throat> what is your other business, or what, what business have you open?
1: Um Well, I've got a, a few kind of in the works. There's a couple I can't really say because there's some conflicts, but um, I, definitely some real estate. Like that's been good getting mm-hmm. into some commercial properties. I've owned some rental houses where you know 100 200 300 thousand houses where I felt like I needed to get in get in the game while I can which get into some you know million dollar properties or so to to once you get those paid off those those look nice you know when you're when you're doing 10 year leases to to businesses and and mm-hmm. so I want to kind of keep that going while I can um but yeah there there's some exciting stuff and stuff that I'm you know working on and, and, um, and that's, what's been cool about the summer is like, I have time to do that. Now I have mental space to do that. And one of my best buddies and manager back home, Brian Kelly, uh, he's helped me a ton. I mean, he's, I met him in 2010 and, um, he's helped me with business and taxes and mindset. And I'd say probably the one person that I've met in my life that has changed it away from racing that has completely helped racing if that makes sense Mm -hmm. a lot of times you just hire someone that to help your riding or to help your racing it's so one-dimensional at that point you don't get to the deeper layers of what's really affecting saturdays Mm -hmm. and he's helped me with that so much so he's kind of the guy that's you know like i said he's pretty much an acting kind of manager not with racing but away from it and manages my taxes and kind of money and, and really everything. you know, He d- talks to my wife all the time about just different ideas and plans, and especially when I'm busy, it's good to have him there. Um, so, yeah, it's been fun to have the summers off to be able to sit down with him and some other partners to kind of see what else is out there. Mm-hmm. Dirt boxes are so small in, in this world that it's cool to see actually what else you can do and, and to put the same drive that I have to be a successful super ass racer. To put that into something else, I have a feeling I'll, I'll hopefully be successful in whatever I choose next.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that you were good friends with Jimmy Johnson, mm-hmm. and you also just mentioned how small motocross is. Like, isn't it just kind of mind blowing sometimes to like look at the earnings of those kind yeah. of guys?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's crazy to like we're talking about money that I've made, and we're you know <clears throat> it might be a million here and there, but it's like. In the grand scheme of things, like that's so minute, you know, um, to what other athletes are making, or or honestly, other businessmen, like businessmen I've met in Charlotte or, or around the world, that would just like, how much do you make in racing? Oh, I make X. You know, say a million dollars. Um, they're like, that's like pocket change. They're like they're yeah. just getting started with life. that, and I'm risking my mm-hmm. life. So um, it's one of the hardest ways to make a living. And like I said, when I sit down with guys like like in other fields in other business they're like man that's a tough way to make a living you could actually do this if you did this with this amount of money and make X you know yeah. it's all risky but it's what um, love yeah it's what I love I, there's, there's no business that I could ever think about even being in other than dirt bikes right now racing motorcycles mm-hmm. if somebody said I could make five million dollars tomorrow doing something else I'm here in Paris racing I'm still racing Anaheim like I don't I just love it, and that's a huge part of life, I think, is money is so – it's relevant, but it's irrelevant at the same time. You can't let it define you. You can't let it control you. If I'm doing what I love for forty grand a year, racing dirt bikes, like I would tell any kid, heck yeah, do it. And if you got to max out a credit card to ride dirt bikes, so be it. This is what you love, and you'll claw your way out of it at some point. Um, so – yeah, it's uh it's been fun to experience different things, but like I said earlier, the the number one thing I think about when I wake up and go to bed is is motorcycles.
0: You're one of the last guys around racing at the highest level that's gone through the whole evolution. Like you raced a one twenty five two stroke, yep. 252 stroke and yep. so on and so forth. Yeah. Is it more dangerous now with the with the more powerful bikes, in your opinion? um or is it I, I don't know is
1: it? It, it's definitely easier and i will say i'm not afraid to say this i i wasn't as good on two stroke like 125 two strokes i would have never even made a super main i I, re, I was terrible on a 125 two stroke so four strokes for me saved my career um and especially 450s like just the way i ride it and Um, So I don't know if more injuries or less, but for me I like it because I like to jump the big stuff. Like the stuff that people say is scary on a 450, that's my strength. Mm -hmm. Like going faster in the whoops and jumping the quads and and doing things like that. That's what I love. And I'm always asking for more power. Like people talk about how fast 450s are. Give me as much as you can give me. And, And in the right places, you know, nowadays they can tune them so good to where, you know you don't just want a crazy rocket ship that rips your arms off Mm -hmm. so you can tune them so well but um yeah i raced 125 two-stroke in super or in arena cross (coughs) i never did in supercross but i was terrible like even if you look at my results from arena cross 125 i'd get like eighth or tenth in the main and then 252 stroke i'd get on podium so i really liked the 252 stroke but um and then once i got on on a 254 stroke it was okay i still wasn't that great but once I got on a 450, that's when kind of things started blossoming, especially outdoors. Uh, I think my best finish outdoors was sixth on a 250, and that was probably by luck. There's probably a 1st turn pileup or some, because I really wasn't that, that good on one. Uh, I think it was just because you have to hang it out so much on those bikes. Mm-hmm. But on a two-stroke, you had to hang it out, but your speeds were so much lower. So that's maybe where injuries um, weren't as high. But... The bikes are fast now, but also our suspension is better than ever. Everyone's more fit than ever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the statistics on injuries and stuff, but um, it's it's what we've all had to adapt to. And like I said, it's it's truly saved my career.
0: You mentioned suspension being better. You, you raced the linkless KTM, mm-hmm. didn't you? Mm-hmm. Can you speak candidly about that now? Like, was it? Yeah, was cr- it good or was it? What's
1: crazy for me is when I went to KTM, that was the, the factory team. You know, like MDK was the yeah. factory team. So I for remember me, they
0: sold the Nick Way replica.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, I honestly I didn't know any different. I didn't know up from down what a good bike was or a bad bike. And Nick Way was my teammate, and he did he knew what a good bike was and what a bad bike was. But thankfully, you know, he never really like. Talk to me too much about it but I knew like he was struggling with that bike and um, for me I was on a factory team and I was gonna make make hay while the sunshine because I was on that team and and for me the the linkless like the, the linkless bike was actually pretty good in the whoops and that was my strong point because the rear end was so dead and I like that dead feeling there even still to this day I like a mm-hmm. dead rear end so it actually was okay where it wasn't that good was when the whoops got really cupped out then it wasn't great but I did West Coast every year for KTN and the whoops didn't get that cupped out they stayed pretty hard packed So, um, and then the 450 everyone who rode it just thought it was horrendous, Travis Preston, Nick Way like, those guys just thought it was horrendous and I loved it I came here to Bercy in 2008 I believe and I got second to James Stewart every race I beat Windham, I beat Josh Grant on this old clapped out super heavy 450 but I was just so yeah. blinded like I, I just rode it I bet if I rode that bike today I'd be like what in the world was I doing <laughs> didn't that bike but,
0: have the choke you had to reach through the gas tank hole to get out
1: I don't really remember it was everything this was weird, <coughs> I thought. yeah I, I don't remember but um I yeah I love that bike and it, it was uh but it was just because I I, I didn't know any different. So it was good for me. Like, yeah, it was the factory team and, and we, I got to ride a test track every day. I got to, you know, I had a great mechanic at the time. Like it was just, I was a workhorse then. And my mechanic was the same. Like he would be up till midnight, prepping my bike. We'd be the first ones at the track, last ones to leave. And the year that I won still city on 450 and was consistently top five coming into that year, I knew I sucked at outdoors, but I was like, I'm ready to change this around. So I did West coast, 250 super and was a really top three top five guy every weekend and um, right when that series went east we went to work on outdoors and I I'll never forget literally sun up to sundown at competitive edge or at Paris testing and testing and testing and riding and riding and riding and and that was the year that really turned it around for one I was excited to be on a big bike outdoors so that was motivating for two. I just knew I needed to to be better and how I was going to be better was all I knew was work at it. And, um, so yeah, that year was really changed, changed my outdoor game for sure. Um, and then from then on I was okay at outdoors. It was never great, but, um, got several podiums and, um, a moto win. So that's pretty cool. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you miss outdoors now? No,
1: (laughs) I don't. I I can honestly say I don't. Um,
0: when you say you're riding for fun this mm -hmm. summer, were you riding outdoors or were you riding on Supercross?
1: No, I was riding outdoors. And I would do jumping with motos with with McAdoo and Nicoletti and Cooper Webb. And and I I enjoy the process of it. I enjoy the process of outdoors a lot because I enjoy the fitness side of racing. I enjoy the the struggle, the, the heat. Um, you can't hide at an outdoor national. You can't hide at Redbud in 105 degrees. Um, and I really, really like that. What I haven't liked is... Is honestly just the travel and the 12-month grind and um, so it was awesome for me to go put in some time during the week and have the weekend off be able to do what I wanted with my family so I think it's just more mental where I say I don't miss it I don't miss having to show up every weekend or every day to be a certain person I can do that from August to May I don't want to do that from January to January Mm -hmm. and that's where I knew I had to give up a little bit of something and outdoors just so happened to be what I gave up. I do love the tracks. Like I said, I love the fitness side of it. It was just, and and even the motos that I did with them, if I was racing that next weekend, I would be there to prove a point. I would be there to beat everyone. I would want a whole shot every moto. Mm -hmm. I'd want to have the fastest lap time. And there's something you're trying to live up to every day. There's a mental stress, and that's Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and then you line up Saturday with another mental stress. So there's four days a week that mentally you're just you're flat you're wore out. Mm-hmm. So I'd show up and mess with the guys a little bit and throw down a fast lap time, but it didn't matter. Like we were all just laughing and I'd whole shot some motos and lead for a while, and, <laughs> but it didn't matter. And honestly, sometimes I'd I'd lead for 20 minutes and, and just pull off and be like, I'll watch you guys the next 15 minutes. Yeah. Where if I was in it, I I couldn't do that. So, um, that was really fun, but I, I don't miss that side of it that side of the mental strain Mm -hmm. how come nobody goes outdoors only i just think the teams they're like what team would be able to pay you to do that what team or sponsor thinks it's worth it um honest i think we're we're a super cost driven country um nothing against outdoors like those guys do an amazing job the tracks are world-class but my friends or family, you know, even when I raced outdoors, they're like they never really watched it. Like, how oh you had a race this weekend? Mm-hmm. They're Super they're tuned in. They're they're yeah. watching it. They're they're in it. So um I don't know. I don't know of a team that you could go to right now and say I want to do outdoors only and, and get three hundred grand to do, you know, like I mm-hmm. just so I think it's a little more difficult. And then outdoors only, you'd only have twelve races where Super cost. You can do the 17. The purse is okay. Even for privateers, it's okay. Um, the shelf life of your bike lasts so much longer during those 17 rounds yeah. than 12 outdoors. And then you can piece together stuff in Australia and Germany Europe and, or, you know, here in Paris and Geneva, and Italy. And there's just more to offer and more room to, to make money and make a living and, and not get as dirty, I guess.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, hey, uh, my friends at OGO who sponsored the show, they haven't gotten me a commercial yet, but I noticed that you got some OGO bags here. I do.
1: Uh,
0: best way to travel
1: to Europe? Absolutely. And what's funny about it, that bag right there that my gear is in, the 9800, 9800, that thing's probably seven or eight years old. Really? And what? I, uh, and the other one I get from Fly, but yeah, I was sponsored by OGO years ago, but I've just lost the connection there. And, and uh, so I just buy them with, with my own money and, and uh, honestly I, because I they are <laughs> the, yeah, honestly because they are the best bags like it's straight up the only way to travel and I travel as much as anybody mm-hmm. overseas and, and everything um, yeah my garage is full of 9800s and, and ones that I've used for 10 or 12 years yeah when I went to Malcolm's house here and I, he was packing for
0: Barcelona mm-hmm. and he had wheels in it
1: yeah I couldn't yeah. believe it fit in there yeah, you can fit so much stuff, and it's like the perfect size. If you pack them full, it's usually around 50 pounds, mm-hmm. so you can max them out and, and be able to get away with it at the airline, and then know that your stuff is going to be safe. Like you're yeah. going to be fine. They roll good. and Yeah, I, like I said, I don't have a sponsorship, but I'll endorse them until the day yeah. I die because yeah. it's like. Well, uh, I um, think
0: Fly is, uses OGR, right? Yeah, that's, so I, I get some fly from OG, Fly. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah, so that one, there's a Fly bag. I um, need 800 so yeah, that's that's how I get those.
0: Nice, nice.
1: Well, hey, Justin, thank you for uh, spending this time with me
0: Uh, here in France it's Saturday morning, and we have the Paris Supercross tonight. Actually, what, okay, so there's Jason Anderson, Marvin Mm -hmm. Scratch, Zach, Zach is here, you, Um, what are your thoughts about tonight?
1: Yeah, I think it should be good. Um, Quite honestly, I don't know if I have 20 laps in me, Mm. just because I'm still dealing with, with bronchitis and stuff, but... Um, i 'll give a fighting chance for sure I think i 'll be fast I just don 't know if I can go the distance, which sucks because that's normally my m o is is uh going the distance and being there for all twenty but i 'm going to be realistic about it, but who knows I might surprise myself and maybe I can sprint the first ten and chill out the last ten.
0: <laughs> are there any uh are there any French guys? Or, or other guys from other countries that might be a wild card that you know about for because. sure yeah
1: every year you come over here Cedric Sabaris is super fast Thomas Ramette Greg Aranda like guys that come to the states and you're like you know they're they're good but they're not great mm-hmm. they're great over here yeah. and they're confident and they're on their own bike they're on their own soil they're eating their own food they, they know what to eat for breakfast like all that matters so and, and the tracks usually easier so everyone does the same thing so um and they're always here to prove a point. they got their family in the stands. So mm-hmm. if they can beat Jason Anderson or Zach Osborne or myself, like that's a feather in their cap. So yeah. um, I never count those guys out. Okay, you just mentioned food.
0: You do a lot of traveling <coughs> to foreign countries, and I see that you've got a bunch of food on your couch there. Mm-hmm. What are your essentials that you have to take in case food is sketchy? Uh,
1: for me, oatmeal is my go-to just because you can get hot water anywhere and usually in the room they have a, a hot water pot so oatmeal is my go-to um, and then just bars like bars with some, a lot of calories and i uh, got some bananas some brown rice cakes some almond butter um, and really the the biggest thing is trying to stay hydrated mm-hmm. like you don't the plane the, the plane just completely dehydrates you and, and um, so you really got to stay on top of that and I've had years where I've just been like oh it's not hot out I'm not sweating and I don't drink much by the last day of racing you're struggling so <laughs> um, yeah just try and bring some snacks but over here like I've gotten to like I love smoked salmon over here smoked salmon is so good with some mm-hmm. eggs and um so I try not to be too picky with the food but if I'm in a pinch I usually always have something to get me out of it Do you know that uh Malcolm
0: <laughs> he'll eat a Burger King and McDonald's when he's overseas because
1: really? he's scared oh really that's funny. That's what he knows. Yeah, and, and those places are all different over here. Like McDonald's <coughs> is actually not as bad as it is in the States. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I try to still stay away from those places, but that's where you know, a pro bar or some oatmeal or something will come into play.
0: Cool. Well, hey, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you for listening um, once again here with Justin Brayton, Braytona himself, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jason.
1: Thank you.